Hi everyone, welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of antiarrhythmics found under the cardiovascular section at MedBullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 56-year-old man recently had a myocardial infarction. While in the hospital, he reported being lightheaded. An electrocardiogram revealed a ventricular arrhythmia. His past medical history included hypertension, diabetes mellitus type 2, and chronic kidney disease. He was initially given amiodarone with no effect. He was then given a medication known to be effective in postmyocardial infarction arrhythmias. That drug was mexilatine. Let's continue with an introduction to antiarrhythmics. Antiarrhythmic medications are divided into four classes. The class 1 drugs are sodium channel blockers. The class 2 drugs are beta blockers. The class 3 drugs are potassium channel blockers and the class 4 drugs are calcium channel blockers. Now let's describe each of these classes in more detail. The class 1A sodium channel blockers can be remembered with the mnemonic double quarter pounder. This stands for disopyramide, quinidine, and procainamide, and their mechanism is to increase the action potential, to increase the effective refractory period, and increase the QT interval. The class 1B sodium channel blockers can be remembered with the mnemonic lettuce and mayo. This stands for lidocaine and mexilatine. Their mechanism is to decrease the action potential, decrease the effective refractory period, and they affect ischemic or depolarized tissue. Hence, they are great for postmyocardial infarction arrhythmias. The class 1C sodium channel blockers can be remembered with the mnemonic fries please. This stands for flacanamide and propafenone. Their mechanism is to increase the effective refractory period in atrioventricular node but not in ventricular tissue. The class II beta blockers can be remembered by the drugs that end in LOL. The selective beta blockers include metoprolol, esmolol, propranolol, atenolol, and timolol. Remember that esmolol is the most short-acting. The non-selective alpha and beta blockers include carvedilol and labetalol. Their mechanism is to decrease sinoatrial and atrioventricular nodal activity they do this by decreasing cyclic AMP and decreasing calcium currents, which decreases the slope of phase 4. They also increase the PR interval. The class 3 potassium channel blockers can be remembered with the mnemonic AIDS. This stands for amiodarone, ibutylide, dofetilide, and sodalol. Their mechanism is to increase the action potential, increase the effective refractory period, and increase the QT interval. The class 4 calcium channel blockers can be remembered with the mnemonic class IV drugs. That stands for verapamil and diltiazam. Their mechanism is to increase the effective refractory period, increase the PR interval, and decrease conduction velocity. Now let's discuss the class 1 sodium channel blockers in more detail. These drugs slow down conduction and decrease the slope of phase 0 depolarization. In class 1A, disopyramide, quinidine, and procainamide, they are clinically used for atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, such as reentrant and ectopic supraventricular tachycardias and ventricular tachycardias. Their toxicity may cause thrombocytopenia, torsade de pointe from an increased QT interval, heart failure from disopyramide specifically, headache and tinnitus from quinidine specifically, and reversible systemic lupus erythematosus-like syndrome from procainamide specifically. 
The class 1b drugs are clinically used for postmyocardial infarction and other ventricular arrhythmias and for digitalis-induced arrhythmias. Their toxicity is that they may cause cardiovascular depression and central nervous system effects. The class 1c drugs are clinically used for SVTs, including atrial fibrillation. Their toxicity is that they are actually proarrhythmics and they are contraindicated in structural and ischemic heart disease, especially postmyocardial infarction. Now let's discuss the class 2 or beta blockers. They are clinically used to treat SVTs, including atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. Their toxicity is that they may cause impotence, exacerbation of lung disease, particularly in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and asthma, and they may have cardiovascular effects such as bradycardia, atrioventricular block, and heart failure. They may have central nervous system effects such as sedation and sleep disturbance, and metoprolol specifically may cause dyslipidemia, while propranolol may exacerbate Prince metal angina. The treatment for overdose of beta blockers is with saline, atropine, and glucagon. Now let's discuss the class 3 or potassium channel blockers in more detail. They are clinically used to treat atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, and ventricular tachycardias, especially with amiodarone and sodalol. Their toxicity is that they may cause torsade de point from sodalol or albutalide use specifically. They may cause excessive beta blockade from the use of sodalol, and amiodarone has no risk of torsade de point. However, one should check pulmonary function tests liver function tests, and thyroid function tests. Remember that amiodarone may cause pulmonary fibrosis and interstitial pneumonitis, hepatotoxicity, and thyrotoxicity leading to hypo or hyperthyroidism depending on the patient's baseline thyroid function or any pre-existing thyroid disease. Amiodarone can also cause blue or gray skin deposits and photodermatitis, corneal deposits, neurologic effects, gastrointestinal effects, and cardiovascular depression from bradycardia, heart block, or heart failure. Now let's discuss the class 4 or calcium channel blockers in more detail. They are clinically used for atrial fibrillation and for prevention of SVTs. Their toxicity is that they may cause constipation, flushing, edema, and cardiovascular depression, which may result in heart failure, atrioventricular block, and sinus node depression. Now let's discuss other antiarrhythmics starting with adenosine. Its mechanism is to increase potassium out of cells, causing hyperpolarization of the cell and decreasing atrioventricular node conduction. They are very short-acting, approximately 15 seconds. Clinically, they are used for diagnosing and or terminating SVTs. However, its toxicity is that it may cause flushing, hypotension, chest pain, a sense of impending doom, and bronchospasm. The other drug is magnesium. It is clinically used to treat torsade de point and digoxin toxicity. However, its own toxicity may result in lethargy and bradycardia. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to antiarrhythmics, let's walk through some questions to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For the first question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 57-year-old man presents to the emergency department with dyspnea and shortness of breath. He has a past medical history of a quote-unquote heart condition being managed by his cardiologist. He states he feels a strange sensation in his chest that started a few hours ago. The patient otherwise denies any chest pain. His temperature is 97.0 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.1 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 109 over 70. Pulse is 123 beats per minute and respirations are 15 breaths per minute. 
Physical exam is notable for corneal deposits. Bilateral clear breath sounds are heard on auscultation. The patient's abdomen is non-tender and he demonstrates no pitting of the lower extremities. An ECG is performed and demonstrates an irregularly irregular pattern with no P waves. Which of the following is a complication of the medication used to treat this patient's underlying diagnosis? And the answer choices are choice one, autoimmune thyroid destruction, choice two, bronchiectasis, choice three, elevated INR, choice four, hypoglycemia, or choice five, interstitial pneumonitis. The best answer to this question is choice five, interstitial pneumonitis. This patient is presenting with atrial fibrillation on ECG, suggested by the irregularly irregular QRS complexes without P waves and corneal deposits on physical exam, suggesting that he is treated with amiodarone for his atrial fibrillation. Chronic amiodarone use can cause interstitial pneumonitis. Amiodarone is a class 3 antiarrhythmic agent that slows conduction through and prolongs repolarization of the SA and AV node and decreases automaticity and is used in ventricular fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardia, and atrial fibrillation. Its mechanism of action is complex. Side effects of this drug can include bradycardia, QT prolongation, hypo or hyperthyroidism, corneal deposits, and a bluish skin hyperpigmentation rash. Amiodarone also can damage the lungs directly via its cytotoxic effect and production of O2 radicals. This can lead to interstitial pneumonitis, which presents with a cough, dyspnea, and fever. The diagnosis can be supported with the chest CT demonstrating ground glass opacities with interstitial infiltrates and possible lung nodules with pleural thickening. The treatment of interstitial pneumonitis secondary to amiodarone is to discontinue amiodarone with steroids possibly indicated. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Autoimmune thyroid destruction describes Hashimoto thyroiditis. The process of thyroid injury is not necessarily autoimmune. And while amiodarone can damage the thyroid or speed up existing Hashimoto thyroiditis, it is not a direct evidence-based cause of autoimmune thyroid destruction. Choice 2. Bronchiectasis describes thickened and inflammatory airways that can occur secondary to chronic lung conditions and smoking. It is not the common pulmonary complication seen with chronic amiodarone use. Choice 3. Elevated INR would be seen in liver failure and cirrhosis. Amiodarone tends to cause hepatitis and elevated liver enzymes, but does not usually impair the synthetic or metabolic function of the liver. Choice 4. Hypoglycemia would be seen in a beta blocker overdose. Beta blockers are actually the preferred agent for atrial fibrillation and have mortality reducing effects. In overdose, bradycardia, hypotension, and hypoglycemia can be seen, and the treatment involves insulin, glucose, glucagon, calcium, and epinephrine. Finally, a bullet summary. Amiodarone can cause interstitial pneumonitis. For the second question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 68-year-old man presents to the clinic reporting several months of fatigue, malaise, cold intolerance, dry skin, and weight gain. He denies any recent infectious symptoms. His past medical history is notable for atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. On exam, his temperature is 36.5 degrees Celsius or 97.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 136 over 89. Pulse is 90 beats per minute. 
respirations are 16 breaths per minute, and oxygen saturation is 96% on room air. His TSH value is 9 microunits per liter, and free T4 is 2 micrograms per deciliter. Which of the following medications could have caused this? And the answer choices are choice 1, amiodarone, choice 2, atorvastatin, choice 3, diltiazam, choice 4, metoprolol, or choice 5, sodalol. The best answer to this question is choice 1, amiodarone. This patient most likely has hypothyroidism as a side effect of chronic use of amiodarone for his atrial fibrillation. Signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism in this patient include fatigue, malaise, cold intolerance, dry skin, and weight gain. Amiodarone is a class 3 antiarrhythmic that works by blocking potassium channels, thus prolonging repolarization of cardiac cells' action potentials. Clinically, it is used to treat atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, and ventricular tachycardia. It is also 40% iodine by weight, and a well-known side effect of prolonged use is the development of hyper or hypothyroidism. As it contains a significant amount of iodine, amiodarone can cause hypothyroidism in patients with underlying autoimmune thyroid disease due to failure to escape from the Wolf-Chikoff effect. That is, when thyroidal iodine concentrations reach a critical elevated level, Iodine transport and thyroid hormone synthesis are transiently inhibited until iodine stores return to normal levels. Amiodarone is also known to have a direct toxic effect on thyroid follicular cells, leading to destructive thyroiditis. Other side effects include pulmonary fibrosis and hepatotoxicity. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 2. Atorvastatin is an HMGA-CoA reductase inhibitor used to lower cholesterol and its side effects include hepatotoxicity and myopathy. Choice 3. Diltiazam is a calcium channel blocker, also used for rate control and atrial fibrillation. Its common side effects are constipation, flushing, and edema. Choice 4. Metoprolol is a beta blocker used for rate control and atrial fibrillation or to treat hypertension and can exacerbate chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or asthma. It is also known to cause dyslipidemia. Choice 5. Sodalol is a potassium channel blocker that has the same mechanism as amiodarone and is used for the same clinical indications, but its associated side effect is torsade de pointe. Finally, a bullet summary. Amiodarone is a class 3 antiarrhythmic that works as a potassium channel blocker used to treat atrial fibrillation and associated with the side effects of hyper or hypothyroidism, pulmonary fibrosis, and hepatotoxicity. That's all for this review about antiarrhythmics. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast.